Well, good morning, everyone. I will confess that it is lonely up here. It is a long way out to you guys. Hi. Tempting to take this and put it right there, right in the middle. But I won't do that. I won't do that today. So if you would open your Bibles, please, to Romans chapter 8. And uh, it is my goal today to finish up this chapter. And I know you're astounded that I'm going to do more than a verse or two. We'll do several, Lord willing, and uh, find our way through the end of this chapter, chapter 8. And uh, it's been... It's been powerful working to this point. We're going to, uh, part of our introduction today is do a review of what has gone on in uh, the previous chapters in Romans leading up to this point, the end of chapter 8. And um, so I I trust that will be as much of a blessing to you as it uh, is for me. And I trust also that this time that we have spent in Romans, working through to understand the reasoning, understand the logic, understand what Paul is saying, has been beneficial to you as it has for me. Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through the end of the chapter. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who was at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let's pray. Father, we worship you this morning. We bow down to you and give you honor. You are worthy of our lives and our time, our affections, our obedience. You are worthy of all honor. And when we read these words, we praise you for what you have done for us in Christ. We praise you for this redemption that we have in him, for the way you have saved us securely. Father, I pray that as we come to these words today, as we come to your word that you have spoken to us, I pray that you would be at work in our midst by your spirit, using your word, these promises, these words to minister to us as you know we need. And so now we submit ourselves to you and ask that you would do your great work even in this time. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I had a uh, very brilliant professor in grad school who was uh, the, an excitable type. He was a lot of fun to sit in his class uh, because he loved his subject matter so much. He just loved to sit in his class and listen to him. And he was high octane. He was excitable. And uh, his classes were great. And his class, the things he taught, he was the, 
he was the chairman of the department in the biblical exegesis department. So he was teaching us how to interpret scripture and he was very good at it. And, um, and so he was enthusiastic and he would uh, often study at home, of course, in his own study. And he, he was kind of like the, you know, um, I don't know, the mad scientist, maybe a stretch a little bit, but he really loved what he was doing. And he would just be excited about these things that he discovered. And he would come and show them to you like you should be just equally as, as excited about that. And his wife uh, was, uh, is equally brilliant with him and maybe more so because when he would come with his excitement, when he would come with his joy and his exuberance about what he had discovered, she knew to ask the question, so what? What does it matter? What does it matter? Yeah, you discovered a new thing, but what does it matter? And when we come to these verses in our passage today, this place in the book of Romans, it is Paul saying, so what? What does it matter? What's the point? Why all the hubbub? Why has Paul spent at least four chapters developing these concepts? four chapters out of a book that is 16 chapters long. He spent a lot of time, and if you think about it, we have spent the better part of eight months examining those four chapters. So why all the hubbub? Is it worth all that effort? What's the point? What comes from it? Well, the answer in part, why the hubbub? Why spend all this time? The answer in part is so that we could truly appreciate the view from the heights of these verses so that we could have a a, a grasp and understanding of what we're looking at when he describes things in the way he does in this paragraph. Without the buildup, without the explanation, without the groundwork, we wouldn't understand just how glorious these verses are and just exactly what they mean So to refresh our minds, and I'm afraid to do this, do a review of these four chapters, and I'll do so in about four minutes, and you'll wonder why we spent eight months on it. (laughs) There was was a point. But let's review. Going back to chapter 5, look at the beginning of chapter 5. We're just going to flip through. I'm not going to read it. I'm not going to go into any details in it. But the beginning of chapter 5, once we were separated from God because of our sin, But now, by faith in Christ, we have been reconciled to God, brought into right relationship with Him. And that takes us into the second half of chapter 5. This happened because Christ came as a new and better Adam, obeying God and securing righteousness and reward for all those who are in Him. So whereas Adam's disobedience had taken all of mankind down with him into guilt and sin and misery. Christ, the last Adam, brought righteousness and life and peace for all those who believe in him. Well, that takes us into chapter 6. What does this new union with Christ mean for our old relationship with sin? Well, Paul tells us in the first part of chapter 6 that in Christ we are no longer slaves to sin. He says in the second half of 6, as Christians, we are now able to obey God. We were not before, and now we are able to obey God. We have a new principle. We have a new desire for righteousness that's deep down in our hearts. And that desire was not there before. We have been enabled to present our members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. And so chapter 7 begins the discussion of the law. And we read in the first half of chapter 7 that because we died with Christ, we have died also and been set free from the law of works. That law which said, do this and you will live. We've been set free from that economy. We've been set free from that arrangement. We've been set free from that law of works. And now into the second half 
of chapter 7, as believers in Christ, we, we have a desire from the heart to obey God's righteous law, but our flesh and the sin that dwells within us war with that good desire. And they cause a terrible conflict within that, that we all can relate to. We have a desire from the heart to obey God, but, but we are bound to this body of death. We can't get free of the wrestling match. And so he asks the question, who will set us free? Which brings us, of course, into chapter 8. The amazing fact is that the Christian, because of Christ, can no longer be condemned. Yes, he still has, resides in, is, has the body of death, but he can no longer be condemned. And more than that, Christ has put his life-giving spirit within you, within us, to guide us and to give us a whole new life principle, a whole new outlook, a whole new understanding, a whole new worldview. Which brings us into the second half of chapter 8, that His Spirit within us now is the latest in a series of God's saving blessings. It began when He foreknew us, before time began. And then He predestined us to be conformed to the image of His Son. And then He called us to Himself. And then He justified us because of the righteousness and the sacrifice of Christ. And it will be completed in the end when we receive that final and ultimate resurrection glory on the last day. And so, this is a picture of God at work. These chapters are all about what God has done in Christ to accomplish salvation for us. And so, with all of that refresher in the back of our minds, we come to our passage. And look how Paul starts it there in verse 31. What shall we say to these things? What shall we say? What, what do we draw from this? What shall we say? What are we to make of all of this? Does, does any of this matter? Any of this review? Any of these things that we've just learned and refreshed our memory about, does any of it matter when we walk out the door today? Or do you just file it away and wait till next week when I readdress the same topics and you can remember where we were in the discussion? Does it matter when we walk out, when you go home, when you go to work? Does it matter? Well, he's asking a question about application. What shall we say? What shall we think? What shall we do? And this is instructive for us. And so this is a, we have a point of application already, even just in this first sentence of our paragraph, that when we learn something new from the Bible, from a sermon, from our Bible reading, something our parents tell us, something we learn. When we learn something new from the Bible, we need to ask three questions. And the first question is whether we really believe it, actually believe it. Not just learning information that fits in with this thing over here and you, you don't really know if you believe that it is actually true or not. So the first question, do you believe what it said? And the second question we need to ask ourselves is what significance it has for the Christian life and for Christian doctrine. What significance it has. Sermons, sermons are not meant, <clears throat> and your Bible reading is not meant merely to convey information. There's certainly an aspect of that. If a sermon doesn't convey information, what was it? I mean, this is the Word of God, which implies con conveyance of information. But it's not only to convey information. A sermon, in part, is designed to convey information that tells you the truth about reality, about your world, the world we live in and what is actually true. Not just information, but information that paints a picture of what reality is. And so we need to ask ourselves the question, what does it matter? How does it fit with everything else? How does it fit together? And so it's my job as a preacher to make points of application, to help make contact between the information we're talking about and your life. 
It is my responsibility to do so, and in a greater sense, it is your responsibility to do so. Every time you encounter God's Word, you should be asking yourself, do I believe this is true? And secondly, how does it fit and inform Christianity, Christian doctrine, Christian life in general? And then thirdly, how does it inform my life, my Christian life, and what I'm to do when I go out from here, what I'm to be like? We need to ask those questions every time we encounter the Bible. It's my task to help you do so, but it is not my task alone. It is primarily your task. You should be asking yourself these things. And I can use an example. I don't have to reach too far to find an example. I see masks on people. And so if you used these same criteria, if you asked these same questions regarding the mask uh, debate, the world we live in, discussion of masks, and I'm not going to express an opinion, though I have opinions on the topic, but if you, in hearing information about the coronavirus and masks, if you draw the conclusion masks are effective for limiting the spread of the coronavirus, I believe that's true. If, you, if that's the conclusion you come to, what's the second thing you're going to do? You're going to think, well, masks should probably be worn when we interact with other people, right? How does it affect the rest of your life? Well, I should probably have a mask. If I believe it's limiting, I should have a mask. And then thirdly, so I need to wear a mask. Not just generally we out there uh, generally need to wear masks. That means I need to have one in my pocket. It means I need to have one on my face when I go out, right? Or vice versa. If in this same discussion, I don't believe masks accomplish uh, the limiting of the spread of the virus. Well, if I don't believe that, well, I'm going to think wearing masks is not accomplishing anything in culture and society around out there. And how's, what's my personal application going to be? I'm not going to find a mask on me. You see how it led me to particular conclusions because of how I understood reality? Well, this is a mask situation. This is going on in our world right now. But it should help us think about our lives and everything we believe when we read the Bible. When we encounter Scripture, we should go through that same process. Whether, uh, whether I make the appropriate application in your situation uh, or not, or whether, whether someone else makes that application or not, that is our responsibility as believers to do that. Do I believe this thing is true? Because if I really believe it's true, it's going to affect the rest of how I understand the world. And understanding the rest of the world is going to determine how I live within it. And so Paul starts off here in verse 31 and he says, what shall we say to these things? What shall we say? Shall we just move on? No, he says he wants to dwell upon it. He wants to think about it. And so he says, second half of verse 31, if God is for us, who can be against us? Who could oppose us? Well, the answer to that question is anyone could oppose you. Everyone could oppose you, and it wouldn't matter. It wouldn't matter who opposed you because God is for us. The God of the universe has been at work accomplishing redemption for us. We just took a very brief tour. He's been at work accomplishing redemption for us. And will, will some other force come in and throw a, a wrench into the works? Derail what God has been working to accomplish? If God is for us, who could be against us? In fact, we're reminded, if you flip back to 828 real quick, we're, we're reminded that suppose there was some force, some powerful force out there that was trying to go against what God was accomplishing, that was trying to uh, derail His plan, that was trying to drive a wedge between Christ's love and you. Imagine if there was such a force out there trying to accomplish such a thing. He or she or it could do its worst. And what does Romans 8:28 tell us? God would take that worst and He would work it for your good. He would work it for your 
good. And so who could oppose us? And so Paul says very strongly, by the way, there are every question in the remainder of this chapter is a rhetorical question. You know the answer. And actually, if you look at your connect group study guide, even if you don't go to a connect group and you don't normally do the study guide, one of the questions in there encourages you to flip those rhetorical questions around. That's a question where you know the answer. Flip it around and make it a statement. Everyone, as you go through this, and you will find encouragement. We read through these and we sort of understand uh, in passing that these are rhetorical questions. And of course, the answer is clear to us. But when you turn it into a statement and write it down, you will be encouraged. You will be encouraged. And there's a second question that he asks in verse 32. He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So not only who could oppose us, but what would God leave undone? Having started the work at such great expense, what would God leave undone? He already offered his son. He already sacrificed his son. He already paid the infinite price. Do you think he's going to stop short before he completes it? Well, the answer is, of course not. Of course not. He is all in. Why would he skimp later on about something of lesser value, something of lesser importance? He did not spare his son. Do you think he's going to skimp in other areas? Of course not. He is working to accomplish, to complete, to, to bring to full fruition this salvation, this redemption that is ours in Christ. And he will not stop. Nothing will cause him to stop. Nothing could be too expensive. He's already paid the greatest price. He who did not spare his son, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things to accomplish and complete and finalize and bring to full fruition this redemption that is ours in Christ. The language here in verse 32 of sparing a son should take you back to Genesis chapter 22. And we're not going to go back. We're not going to read that. But if you remember that passage, that's where, that's where God spoke to Abraham and said, take your son, your only son, the son of promise, the one that you waited for. Take that son. Take him to Moriah. I'll show you a mountain. And I want you to sacrifice him to me there. And Abraham obeys. It's amazing. And he packs up all of his stuff and his helpers and his son. And he goes to Moriah. And he leaves his helpers and his stuff at the bottom of the mountain. And he and his son and the wood, the knife, go up the mountain. Abraham is obeying. He's willing to sacrifice Isaac in that context. And right as he's about to do it, right as he's about to, to obey God to that extent, he's about to give up his own son that he waited for so long. And right as he's about to complete it, what happens? The angel of the Lord says, Abraham, Abraham. And I will bet Abraham paid attention. And I will bet he answered quickly. Here I am, right here, whoa, right here. And of course, God spared Abraham's son. And instead, he provided a ram from the thicket. But God, who spared Abraham's son, did not spare his own son. Genesis 22 is a picture of what would come. It's a picture of what would happen when God himself would take his own son and would offer his own son and would not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. He spared Isaac, but he didn't spare his own son. He spared Abraham the agony of losing that son. He did not spare himself that agony. What would God leave undone? Having already sacrificed that which is of infinite worth, would there be anything else he would be unwilling to pay? Of course not. Of course not. So then, who could threaten our standing with God? Look at verse 33. If God is so all in that he'd be willing to give his son, 
Who could threaten our standing before God? Look at 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Can, can God's verdict be overruled? Can his verdict be overruled? God has already given his verdict on everything that we have done. It's not that he looked at the good stuff in your life and rendered a verdict and ignored the bad stuff or weighed it in the balance or something like that. He examined everything in your life. And it was not flattering. And in that instance, he rendered the verdict. Not guilty because of Christ. Just because of Christ. He already handed down that verdict What more could be brought against us? Here God has literally every piece of evidence of your guilt laid out in front of Him. Literally every one. Past, present, and future. Laid out entirely before Him. And He has examined it. He has gone through every bit of it. And He has put it on Christ. And He's rendered the verdict just. So what if some objector wants to raise an objection. Yeah, but 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 didn't you look at the... Do you remember this date? He already looked at it all. And he put it on Christ and he rendered the verdict of not guilty. He rendered the verdict just in Christ because of Christ. It's impossible for that judgment to be overruled. But he continues, verse 34, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who was at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. And can Christ's work be undone? Could Christ's work be undone? Could we ever be condemned when Christ has already stood condemned in our place. Could we ever have the penalty for guilt, the penalty for sin placed upon us when that penalty has already been placed upon Christ and executed in Him? Could it be? Of course not. Of course not. He's already borne the penalty. Is God going to be unjust and put the penalty on us as well? Can the work of Christ be undone? That would be absurd. That's absurd. And Christ not only died, He bore that penalty all the way, not just for a moment, not just for some suffering, not just bleeding for a while or something like that. He bore it to the death. He paid it in full. And how do we know He paid it in full? Because God raised Him from the dead. God raising Christ from the dead is the indication to us that Christ's sacrifice, His offering, His substitution, His payment that He made for all of the sin that was placed upon Him, His payment was accepted. We know that because God raised Him from the dead. That payment has been accepted. But that's not the end either. Because He also ascended back to the Father, back to the place where He originally came from. But not only that, But now He is at the right hand of the Father. Not only returned to glory, not only returned to heaven where He came from, He returned and has an even greater position at the right hand of the Father with all authority having been given to Him, all judgment having been given to Him. This is Christ. Is someone going to undo His work? Well, it's not done there because He who has all authority, who is in heaven, who is at the right hand of the Father, whose decision no one can reverse, whose hand no one can fight. What is he doing? He is interceding for you. He is interceding for you. And when a charge is brought, when an objection is brought, when slander is brought, he pleads your case before the Father, pleads his own blood on your case before the Father. He himself 
is interceding for you. Is someone going to undo what he's doing? Is someone going to countermand his orders? It's absurd. Of course not. Of course not. No created being could possibly second guess what, what Christ has fully accomplished and what the Father has accepted can't be done. God's verdict cannot be overruled and Christ's work cannot be undone. That's the result of 5 through 8. That's the result of what has happened that Christ has done for us. And so that asks the question, can anything separate us from Christ's love? With these things being true, can anything separate us from Christ's love? Look at verses 35 and 36. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. So the question he's asking is, can anything separate us from the love of Christ? Well, what about when the odds against us are impossible? Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. Now there's a figure of speech that's used in the way these are put together. And that figure of speech causes us to pause at each one of these and examine it and think about it on its own. Think about this one and then think about this one and then think about this one all the way through. There are, there's another figure of speech that's used in, uh, in the New Testament where it's a list, this, 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 this. And the, the point is for you to think about it in its entirety Examine it in its entirety. That's what he's trying to convey, but not here. Here he's saying, think about this for a minute. How do you like that tribulation stuff? Think about this for a minute. What about danger? What about hunger? I'm not big on hunger. What about, and he goes on through the list. But, and each one of them is frightening. If you think about it by itself, we're not going to take the time together to think through each of these things. But when you think about them, they're frightening. And what's interesting is these frightening images didn't come from Paul's imagination. They came from his memory. They came from his experience. Some of these very words, we find him writing about himself, his own experiences in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Actually, all of the words that we read about here, except for the sword. And by the way, if you remember Paul's life, the sword comes later. It's not written about in the Bible, but from history we know it. The sword comes later. But everything else he had experienced already. He says this in 2 Corinthians 11, starting in verse 25. He says, three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people. Danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. He's remembering these things. He's not making them up. He says, this is, this is what I've experienced this is what I've been through. This is what Christ has taken me through. And he builds on it there in verse 36, back in Romans 8. He says, uh, with a quotation from the Old Testament, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. That's a quotation from, from the Psalms. Back in Psalm 44, which I encourage you to read all of Psalm 44. It's a, a very interesting psalm for this reason, not because... The people of God are suffering. That, that happens a lot. But in Psalm 44, the people of God are suffering and they're obeying. So Psalm 44 is pretty unique. And here they are obeying. Here they are honoring God with their lives. And yet they are suffering. 
They are suffering in that context. And so that helps us think about suffering just a little bit. That sometimes we suffer even though we're doing right. Sometimes we suffer because we're doing right. And if you flip that around, when you're suffering, it's not always because you've done something wrong. It may be because you've done something right. So it helps us think differently about suffering. But here's what Paul, uh, reflecting on suffering and the suffering in his life, in particular suffering, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 says this, For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Then I am strong. When I'm brought to that place where I must rely on God, I must rely on Christ to take me through. At that point, I am strong. And so my weakness results in that. For when I am weak, then I am strong. But we continue back in Romans 8, verse 37. No. He says, in all these things, we are more than conquerors. We super conquer. We abundantly conquer. We, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. He says we are more than conquerors. More than conquerors, despite any and all opposition that might come against us. We are more than conquerors. And he breaks it down there. You'll notice as you're reading through those things, death and life and height and depth, you'll see that they're kind of paired together. And the reason he's doing that is because he's, he's giving a spectrum. And he's saying all the way this way to all the way that way. All the stuff in between and to its extremity cannot come between you and the love of God in Christ. What about death and life and everything in between? Nope. Can't separate you from the love of God. God in Christ. What about angels and rulers? What about unseen spiritual forces? Those are scary. Those are powerful. Nope. Can't come between you and the love of God in Christ. What about things present? What about things to come? What about things anywhere in history? Things to, we fear the future, don't we? We think about the future, we watch the news, and we worry about our children or, or whatever. We worry about what's to come, and what about that thing to come? Can there, maybe there's going to be something to come that can come between me and the love of God in Christ. And he says, no, nothing present and nothing future. Can't happen. But what about powers? Powers. Maybe, maybe, maybe if it's strong enough, maybe this thing, maybe... Maybe if there's a strong enough power, it could wedge itself in and cut me off from the love of God in Christ. Is there something strong enough? Maybe if I double that strength and imagine it, maybe if I double that strength, is there something, could it be possible for there to be a power strong enough to separate me from the love of God in Christ? No, he says, no. What about anything anywhere in the world, anywhere in the known or unknown universe? I mean, there are some pretty big stars. Maybe there are some really big other things. Doesn't matter. He says, neither height nor depth. There is nothing. There is nothing. He's, he's laid out all of these different uh, examples of spectrum. All the way this way to all the way that way and everything in between? Cannot. What about this other realm? Nope, cannot. What about this other realm? Nope, cannot. And then he concludes with this. Just in case your imagination is really good in case you imagine something else that might be different, that might wedge itself between you and the love of God in Christ. He says, nothing else in all of creation. In case I missed a category, in case I forgot to to talk about a spectrum, in case you thought of something I didn't think of, nothing else in all of creation. By the way, everything in all of creation is everything except God. Everything except God is creation. And what has God been doing these past chapters? 
accomplishing our salvation. Despite anything that might come from any of these categories, we are more than conquerors. Our conquest is perfect, it is final, it is complete, it is secure in Christ. And that brings us to our final point that I want to close with. It is through him who loved us. Look at verse 37. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. The question he asked up in verse 35 is, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? That's not our love for Christ. It's his love for us. His love for us. For us, you think about the depth, the extent, and the quality of Christ's love for us. What he endured. The Son of God takes on our flesh. He endures being sinned against. He endures life in this sinful world. He obeys God always, suffering throughout, righteous his entire life, and dying the death that you and I deserve. That's rooted in, that comes from his love for us. And Paul's point here, that he's labored to make, that he's trying to He's trying to make that point in every possible way. There is nothing, there is no possibility for us to be separated from that love for us that would cause him to do that, that would cause him to endure all of that. We looked at 1 Peter chapter 2 last week and we, we talked about Jesus and all that he suffered under unrighteous judges, unjust Judges. He suffered. He endured. He didn't revile in return. He didn't fight back. He didn't escape. He endured the evil that they piled on him. And he did so to redeem us. The love of Christ for us is unimaginable. It's beyond words to describe. But I think, in closing, I want to refer to first. Uh, excuse me, Isaiah. 53 and verse 10, and really all of Isaiah 53 would inform us about just how much Christ loves us, that he would endure all of that that you find in Isaiah chapter 53. But I want to focus just on verse 10 that says this, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. It was God's will to crush him, Christ. He has put him to grief. God has put Christ to grief. That's what he endured. That's what he was willing to endure. He willingly undertook that to redeem you. And when his soul, when Christ's soul makes an offering for guilt, by the way, that was not his guilt, was it? Contrary to what you might hear on CNN, that was your guilt and my guilt. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. Who are his offspring? That's you. You and I are his offspring. He had that before him. When he's making that offering for guilt, when he's making that payment for sin, he does so out of love for us. Now, there are other elements that go into this, and we could talk about his desire for God's glory, etc. But Paul is really focusing on the love of Christ for us. That when he made that offering for sin, he had his offspring in his mind. That's the love that he has for us. And so this is the love of Christ. And what shall separate us from it? Nothing and no one could ever possibly in any reality, in any imagination, separate us from the love of Christ. 
it cannot happen. And that's what he wants to hit on. That's what he wants to dwell upon at the conclusion of all of this big section that we've been looking at. What he's trying to say is because of what Jesus has done, starting back there and all the way to here, you are secure in him. Look at these promises that are yours in Christ so that he would call you an overcomer, an ultra overcomer, more than a conqueror. That is yours because of Christ. And that is yours in Christ. But the sobering reality is that these incredible promises are true only in Christ. They're not to be found anywhere else but in Christ alone. And so, if you are outside of Christ, if you don't know Him, if you have not come to believe in Christ as your Savior, these promises are not true of you. At least not yet. These are the promises that have been secured for us because of Christ. These are, these are promises we have in Christ. And so you who are outside of Christ, you who don't know Him, you need to think about that. That the, the penalty that He bore, that Paul rejoiced that penalty has been paid and it cannot be unpaid, and God is not unjust such that He would require someone else to pay the same penalty, that penalty, outside of Christ, you will bear yourself. You will bear that yourself. But the amazing promise in Christ, the glorious, freeing, life-giving promise in Christ is that He, the Son of God, took on our flesh, lived obediently to God as we always should have, as Adam should have, but didn't, and we follow Adam. But He lived obediently. And then He went to the cross. He didn't need to. It wasn't for him. It wasn't his guilt. It was mine. And paid that penalty to the fullest. And I know it was paid to the fullest. And I know it was acceptable to God because God raised Jesus from the dead. And so now anyone who comes to Christ in faith, anyone who looks at him and says, I need that sacrifice for me. I believe he did that for me. Anyone who believes in Christ will find that these promises are His. We'll find that these promises are true for Him, for her. And so I would, I would encourage you this morning, if you don't know Christ, you need to believe in Christ. Trust in Him. Look at the penalty that He paid. Look what He underwent. Look what He endured. And he did so in love. When you place your faith in Christ, when you trust in him, that's a love that is unassailable when he loves you that way. And so if you don't know Christ, you need to come to know Christ. Trust in him. But there's another application for the rest of us. And that is this. Fix your eyes on him. Security is not found by, uh, by looking to ourselves, by looking to anything in here. I won't find security here. Security is found only by looking to the love and the merit and the work of God on your behalf and what he has accomplished. There is security. The, the message here, the message of this passage is not gird up your loins and be an overcomer. That is not the message of this passage. The message of this passage is look to Jesus and what he, has, what he has done and you will overcome. Look to Christ. Look to Christ and what he has done. This chapter may be the most encouraging chapter in all of the Bible. Began with this very sweet statement in verse 1, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. 
And he concludes this chapter with the statement, and there never will be. What hope we have in Christ, what joy we have in Christ, what has been accomplished for us is amazing in Christ. And it's hard for me to convey to you the joy there. It's hard for me to convey to you what what kind of hope and peace and life and everything that we find in these truths that Paul has been building for chapters so we can get to this crescendo, so that we can climb to these heights and we can look and we can see and we can rejoice in what God has done and what Christ has accomplished for us. For those in Christ, there never will be condemnation. Let's pray. Father, thank you as too small phrase inadequate to express our gratitude to you for what you have accomplished it's hard to comprehend and much less put into words and explain just the depth of this joy that we read about in these verses, that there is nothing, no nothing, no nothing, no one that can separate us from the love of God in Christ. Father, thank you. And I pray that this truth would remain with us, not just while we have our Bibles open or while we're in church or but that that we would take these truths, this truth of your love for us in, in Christ that's perfected and unassailable, that we would take that truth into our lives and that it would reshape everything. The way we view fear, uncertainty, people who sin against us, our own weakness, the future, everything. Father, shape us with this truth. We rejoice and we praise you. We praise your name for what you have done for us in Christ. We are the most blessed. And we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, to him who is able to strengthen you, According to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages but has now been disclosed, and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God, be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen and amen. God bless you all, and you are dismissed.